This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. We have an exciting episode for you today. This is episode 232, entitled The Suffering Human Servant in Isaiah. In this week's episode, we are going to explore the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah, and we're going to investigate how these Isianic passages, that's how you describe passages from Isaiah, use the word Isianic, these Isianic passages influenced the Christological depictions of Jesus Christ within the New Testament. Now, many readers of the Bible will be familiar with Isaiah chapter 53 and this chapter's language that was picked up by the New Testament authors to portray Jesus Christ as one suffering on the cross. Even so, the influence of these Isianic suffering servant passages appear to be much more substantial and widespread. So here are some questions that I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, who is the suffering servant according to Isaiah? That's a very important question. Second, how does Jesus see himself as the suffering servant? And what sort of interpretive methods are being exercised in this interpretation? Number three, does the suffering servant from Isaiah point to Jesus being a human figure or a heavenly divine figure? And lastly, how does Matthew, a test subject of sorts among the New Testament Gospels, frame his portrayal of Jesus in light of Isaiah's suffering servant? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is introducing the suffering servant from Isaiah. Now, the book of Isaiah has four concentrated passages that talk about the suffering servant, or my servant, as it is often described in the book of Isaiah. And those suffering servant songs are in chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53, even though the one in 53 also includes a couple of verses from the end of 52. The chapter break there is a little questionable. Now, even though these are the major hubs of suffering servant descriptions within Isaiah, the reference to God's servant is scattered throughout this section of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. So we have four major passages, but we also have some scattered references throughout this section of Isaiah. So let's look at the first of these servant passages from Isaiah chapter 42. I'll start in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He 
He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. That's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7. So we have the initial servant song from Isaiah. This word is in chapter 42, where it introduces the servant. And we have Yahweh speaking here through the prophet, saying, Behold my servant. We can see from verse 1 that the servant is going to be authorized by Yahweh, because Yahweh is going to put his spirit upon him. We can tell a lot about this particular person. The person speaking there is Yahweh. Yahweh is a single person because Yahweh says, my spirit, and my is a singular pronoun. And Yahweh is going to put his spirit upon this particular servant. The servant here is described as a single individual. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice. So we get the impression here that the servant is a single individual. And yet he has this powerful mission set forth by God. God, of course, is Yahweh. And it is pretty clear in this passage that the servant is distinguished from Yahweh. Yahweh and the servant are not distinguished. Yahweh and his servant are clearly two separate and distinct individuals. Verse 5 says, Yahweh is the one who created the heavens and spread out the earth. And then Yahweh says that I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. Here the sense is that God has summoned this servant for a prophetic purpose. There is a call. There is a prophetic call upon this servant's life. God is going to hold him by the hand. And watch over him. So there's just going to be a sense of leading from Yahweh and protection. And there's an appointing. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. So there is a broad sense that this servant is going to establish covenant relations to the peoples and to the nations. The word for nations there is the same word for Gentiles. So there's a far-spreading mission for this particular servant. And of course, he is to open blind eyes, to release prisoners from the dungeons, and release those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So we learn a lot about the servant figure here. 
We learn that he is ordained by Yahweh. He is appointed by Yahweh. He has been called by Yahweh. But we don't actually know much about the identity of this particular servant. Fortunately for us, as we continue reading through Isaiah, the identity of this servant is plainly spelled out for us on many different occasions. For example, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10 says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen. So here it's the readers of Isaiah. You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, as Isaiah 43, verse 10. Now, what's interesting here is that the servant figure is actually described as a plurality of persons. My servant is set in parallel to my witnesses. This seems to be the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. They collectively, as a people, are being described as God's servants. So even though the servant figure seems to be an individual figure, that figure seems to be a single designation to refer to multiple witnesses. We can see a little bit more confirmation of this in the next chapter. And Isaiah 44, starting at verse 1, it says, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. This is Yahweh who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. That's Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 2. Clearly, the servant there, who is still distinguished from Yahweh, is called Jacob and Israel. It's the nation of Israel. And yet the nation of Israel is described as this single figure, God's servant. We can see a little bit more of this later in Isaiah chapter 44. In verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. That's Isaiah 44, verse 21. Again, the servant is clearly identified as Jacob slash Israel. It's the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, described as this single servant figure. And again, in Isaiah 49, verse 3, it says, He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Isaiah 49, verse 3, again, clearly and unambiguously describing the servant from Isaiah as Israel. Israel as the nation, as a group of people, are being described as this single individual, God's servant. And yet, God is going to reveal his glory through this servant figure. So you might already be thinking, wait a minute, how can the nation of Israel be the servant from Isaiah and Jesus himself regard himself as the servant? Well, Jesus is the Messiah, and the Jewish Messiah is the king, and according to Jewish royal theology, the Messiah is one person who represents his people. This is how Jesus, as a single individual, can embody 
the role and the responsibility of Israel, the servant of God, and to see himself as the one representative of Israel that bears the destiny and the mission of the servant from Isaiah. So it's true that Jesus is the suffering servant. It's also true that the suffering servant originally in Isaiah was in reference to Israel as a nation. And the way to make sense of both of those facts is to see that Jesus is the king who represents his people, who embodies the destiny of Israel because he is the Messiah. And thereby, Jesus can fulfill the role of the suffering servant. So it's very important for us to consider. Let's look at the fourth suffering servant psalm and draw some more data from it. So this is our second point, the fourth suffering servant psalm. So this is the one that's in Isaiah 53, although I mentioned before that it also includes verses from Isaiah 52. So the passage really is Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and it finishes that chapter out, and then it goes to Isaiah chapter 53, the entire chapter, which is verses 1 through 12. So I'm going to read through this, but I'm also going to stop and point out a few things because it's very interesting that this particular passage is going to describe the servant in very human terms, which is exactly what we would expect if the servant originally is a reference to the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, because every single one of the children of Israel, men and women, adults and children, were all human beings. They were all members of the human race. There should be no surprise that the servant figure here is described as a human being. But that also tells us that if Jesus embodies that particular role and destiny, then Jesus too is a human being as well as a child of Israel. Jesus is a member of the human race. And that is what this passage is going to emphasize, the suffering of this human figure on behalf of others. So we'll start in our passage, which is in Isaiah 52, verse 13, which says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So there we can see that there is going to be a high exaltation of this particular servant. This is actually drawn upon in the New Testament in Philippians 2, where Paul says that after the death of Jesus, Jesus was highly exalted and given the name which is above every name. Moving on in our passage here, verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So what we could see here is that this particular individual is going to be disfigured in face. He's going to be marred more than any man. This, of course, indicates that he is a man. The Hebrew noun there is ish, which indicates a male figure. And, of course, the parallel indicates that his form 
is going to be marred more than the sons of men, the B'nai Adam, the sons of men. This, of course, means that he is a member of this category, sons of men, the sons or children of humanity. So we're seeing lots of occurrences here that indicate that this servant figure is a human being. Verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Let's move on into 53 verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That's verses 1 through 2. So we can see a sense to where there is a message from Yahweh. This message is powerful because it is the arm of the Lord that is being revealed. The arm of the Lord indicates God's mighty presence and purposes. And then it indicates that he, the servant, grew up before him, Yahweh, which clearly, and again, distinguishes the servant from Yahweh. This servant grows up. He is like a shoot and a root. And yet, he doesn't have a majestic form. Of course, God is one that is clothed in majesty, but this particular servant figure is just a human being that doesn't look particularly special. When people look upon him, there's nothing out of the ordinary. No one is going to be attracted to his particular appearance. Again, there's a strong contrast between the glorious and majestic appearances of Yahweh and the plain and ordinary appearance of this servant figure. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. So here in verse 3, he's actually called a man of sorrows using the Hebrew noun ish, which refers to a male, a man who is male. But he is a human being. He's a human being of sorrows, and he's going to be deeply acquainted with grief. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here he is not only someone who is acquainted with grief, surely our griefs he himself bore. So we can see a couple of things that are going on here. We can see that at this point we have the, the readers here, our griefs he himself bore. So he is this select individual who, although he is a part of Israel, he is also in some sense distinguished from Israel because he is being a representative figure of them. He is taking upon himself the griefs and the sorrows of this first-person plural reference. And then we ourselves, another first-person plural reference, esteemed him stricken. 
and yet he is stricken of God, indicating that he is distinguished from God. So there's a lot of nuances being handled here in this particular passage, and the nuance and the complexity of this is why there has been so many debates regarding the identity of this suffering servant figure, especially in the way that he is related to Israel, and yet he is also distinguished from Israel in some sense in his role here, as we see in Isaiah 53. Let's look a little further, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So four times here, we can see the first-person plural reference indicating the readers, the Jewish readers, our transgressions, our iniquities, our well-being, we are healed. And yet, he is someone who is a representative of Israel and Jacob. So here, there is the sense of atonement to where he is pierced for us, he is crushed for us, the chastening of us is going to fall upon him, and because of these actions, we are actually going to be healed. We as in the ideal readers of Isaiah. And so there is a suffering element and an atoning element of this particular person, which is the sense here that someone, or at least a servant-type figure within Israel, is going to be the means and the locus of the suffering that is supposed to belong to Israel. These things should actually happen to Israel, according to this particular passage. And since this passage was probably written within the exile, which is a major sense of curse and punishment, according to Deuteronomy, we can see that these punishments are well-deserved. And yet, there seems to be a particular servant figure here who has, in the midst of the elements of his ministry and his destiny, it includes the responsibility to suffer on behalf of Israel. Verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So again, we can see the first person pronouns. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And again, the iniquity of us has fallen upon him. And yet this is something that Yahweh is causing to happen. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. So he is representing and taking upon the iniquity of this particular group of people. And he's also distinguished from Yahweh. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So we get a sense that he is oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not argue back. He didn't curse back. He didn't fight back verbally. He, it indicates that he did not open his mouth. He was quiet. He didn't open his mouth. It's actually mentioned twice in this particular verse. And in doing so, he is likened unto a lamb, a lamb that is led 
to slaughter. Of course, the lamb is a deeply powerful image in the Passover sacrifice. So there are elements here and echoes of the Passover. This figure here that is a suffering figure representing others is also likened unto a Passover lamb. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And so we could see here that he has his own generation. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, my people Israel. It seems that the speaker here now is Yahweh, although Yahweh is speaking through the prophet, so we don't know if my people is my people Israel coming from the mouth of Yahweh, or it's my people as in the prophet understands Israel to be his people. But clearly here, this particular person is distinguished from Yahweh, and he bears the transgression of my people. And that stroke was particularly due as a transgression for the people. Verses 9 through 10. His grave was signed with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offering, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. So we can see here that this figure is going to die. He's going to have a grave assigned with wicked men. He's not going to be a violent figure. He's not going to have deceit spoken from his mouth. He's again distinguished from Yahweh, and Yahweh crushes him. Yahweh puts him to grief. He is regarded in sacrificial terms as a guilt offering. And yet there is a promise that his days will be prolonged. How is it that a figure here is going to die, and yet he's going to have prolonged days? Well, that seems to be interpreted in the New Testament in the sense of resurrection. And yet, Yahweh's good pleasure is going to prosper this particular servant. Well, of course, after the resurrection, if he's raised to eternal life, that is certainly a prosperous reward. Verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. So here the servant is called God's righteous one. And of course, he's going to bear iniquities, as we've seen throughout this passage. And finally, verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So here, the servant pours out himself unto death. And the word for himself is the word in Hebrew, nephesh, which is the word for soul. He poured out his soul unto death. So this figure has a soul that's going to die. He doesn't have an immortal soul, obviously, but his soul dies, which is just what happens when every single human being dies. Their soul dies. Their life is extinguished. And yet he was numbered among transgressors. And of course, there is the 
atoning aspect of bearing the sin of many, and of course interceding for the people, and not just any people, but for transgressors. Let's move to our third and final point, which is Jesus as the Isianic servant in Matthew. Now, we could have picked any gospel. We could have picked Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. In fact, we'll look next week at the Gospel of John, how the Gospel of John sees Jesus in light of the suffering servant in a very interesting passage. But I just picked Matthew because it's the first gospel we have in the New Testament. Why not? So Matthew draws upon Isaiah in some very interesting ways to portray Jesus Christologically. Well, the first place that we see this portrayal is actually at the baptism of Jesus. Very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16. says that the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, verses 16 through 17. Now, we've spent a lot of time in some recent episodes talking about the baptism of Jesus and the announcement of Jesus' sonship. And we made it very clear there that the initial reference here to this is my beloved son is drawing from Psalm 2, verse 7. However, the reference of this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in addition to the fact that the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus, clearly alludes to Isaiah 42, verse 1, the initial passage that we studied in our podcast today. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, Behold, my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So here we have the servant. He is chosen. He is the one that is in delight from the perspective of God, and God puts his spirit upon him. And these references here seem to be combined with the references of Psalm 2-7 to where we have the fact that this anointed figure who is the messianic king is also the servant that is being anointed with the spirit for the mission of the Isianic suffering servant. And nearly every scholar that comments on the baptism of Jesus sees a reference to both Isaiah 42, verse 1, and Psalm 2, 7 there. Let's move on. In Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 16, it says, When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. That's Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. Now, we don't have to guess here because Matthew is quite clear that this is fulfilling what was spoken through Isaiah. And the quotation here is from Isaiah 53. Specifically, it's Isaiah 53, verse 4, but it's citing from the Septuagint, so the wording here is slightly different than what we just read in section two of this week's podcast. But clearly Jesus is taking upon the infirmities and carrying away our diseases. Now what's interesting is that this aspect of Jesus bearing infirmities and carrying away diseases, which many people would think refers to Jesus atoning for the sins of the people on the cross, is actually something that Jesus is doing in the middle of his ministry. 
It's when Jesus is exercising the demons from the demon-possessed and when he cast out the spirits with a word and healing those people who are ill. So Jesus is bearing infirmities and diseases. He is representing people and dealing with their sicknesses and their ailments in the middle of his ministry, not just at the end of his ministry on the cross. So Jesus is functioning as that representative figure who deals with evil even in the midst of his ministry. I think that's very fascinating. Let's move along. There's another passage in Matthew that is a little bit lengthy, but it has another clear reference to Isaiah 42. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9, it says, Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable, then, is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it restored to normal like the other. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then Matthew cites Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 3. It says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him. He's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Yada, yada, yada. And it goes on, verses 19, 20, and 21 to continue the reference to Isaiah 42. So again, we don't have to guess Jesus is regarded in terms of the suffering servant, the servant from Isaiah 42. And Matthew makes that quite clear, especially in light of Jesus healing, but also Jesus being one who doesn't deliberately come into confrontation. This is cited because Jesus being aware of the fact that the Pharisees are trying to destroy him, he withdrew from there. This indicates that Jesus is not quarreling, he's not crying out in Matthew 12, verse 19, which cites Isaiah 42, verse 2. And lastly, I think this passage is very fascinating. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, it says, Jesus called them, he calls his disciples to himself, and he says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. And so here Jesus teaches his disciples that they're not to lord authority over one another. The greatest among them is going to be the servant. And just like that, Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
And it's in this passage, verse 28, where we have many echoes, I believe, of the Isianic suffering servant. Remember, the suffering servant is someone who serves. And here he says that the Son of Man is someone who has come to serve. He also is someone who is giving his life a ransom for many. And we saw from Isaiah 53 that the servant poured out his soul unto death. And here, the servant, the one who serves, is going to give his life. But in Greek, the noun siki is the word for soul. He pours out his soul as a ransom for many. We have the ransom type of language here, which is not specifically used in Isaiah 53, but the concept of ransoming other people in the atonement category, of course, is quite clear. And of course, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, which is a human figure, and we saw from Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant was a human figure. So here we have the fact that we have the servant who pours out his soul unto death. He does so in the sense of a ransom, and he is a human figure. All of those seem to, in my opinion, draw upon Isaiah 53. So Matthew is able to portray Jesus in terms of the Isianic suffering servant, sometimes explicitly with references to Isaiah through quotations, but sometimes implicitly through allusions and echoes which seem to be very persuasive. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look in John chapter 12 and the glory that Isaiah saw. Did Isaiah see Jesus in the glory from Isaiah chapter 6, which has Yahweh on the throne? Or did Isaiah see Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53? Join us next week as we look at this difficult passage from John chapter 12. Please look forward to our next episode. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the episode's description for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith. Until next time, please take care.